The following podcast contains explicit language. I found that cauliflower and mac and cheese to be offensive. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Fox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me, as usual, is my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. We are recording, not live, I guess, we're just recording, but from a from a new facility here, <laughs> which has more lights, less uncomfortable temperature. Um, I totally disagree about the temperature. Really? I think this is a pretty uncomfortable temperature. Well, I'm not saying it's comfortable, but I'm saying <laughs> it's, it's better. I you you boring... all don't know what we go through to bring you the this podcast. The thing about podcasts is that you can't have loud air conditioning running in the background. But you so. can have hosts sweating, which doesn't make noise. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's uh, it's sort of like the hot yoga of me. <laughs> which uh, is good because I actually really like doing hot yoga. Oh, I so, hate hot yoga. Yeah. No, this will have to be a further a wonk view. Well, Dave Roberts from Vox, who got me into hot yoga, could come on the podcast and explain its joys. Yeah, yeah. the oh. yoga. It's yoga, really fantastic. Yoga, yoga podcast. It's like torturing yourself with exercise. Yeah, it sounds so great. So good. Okay, but let's torture ourselves now with, with content. Um, we've got some great stuff coming up some great research. We are, instead of discussing the debate, we've got some much weedsier news to talk about. But, you know, we, we like to kick things off uh, a little bit, you know, just, just floating just more, around. more evergreen. We actually got a, a reader email that brought up a topic that I've actually long wanted to talk to you about, Matt. So I'm going to read I'm going to read the email. One, the emailer says, I want to say thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to the podcast. It completely proves the old adage of the devils in the details. So I like this email. It begins with some compliments. It says, I thought an interesting future topic could be about the effects of gentrification, whether it actually plagues urban environments as much as people claim, if it is worth fixing, and the best policy mechanisms. Do you want to legislate rents, increase transportation options, et cetera? Matt, you have done a lot of work on gentrification, on zoning. You wrote a book called The Rent is Too Damn High. And this is a topic that affects my life, that I read about a fair amount, but I don't feel like I understand that one. I've actually never sat down with you and confessed to the full level of ignorance. I have about it. So I'm kind of excited to just be able to do this directly. What is gentrification? How would you define it? People who cover urban policy extensively come to be really, really annoyed by the term gentrification because it lacks a firm definition. You know, when people will joke about it, and like gentrification is whatever happens like 18 months after you move to a new neighborhood. Um, And in a a way, and and it's related to the phenomenon of hipsters, which is also similarly annoying because no one is ever the gentrifier. No one is ever the hipster. This is this kind of like urban othering process. But I think the general idea is that in the United States since the mid-1990s, in some cities at least, there has been a, a sort of a return to the city, right? There was a big urban crisis in the 60s and 70s that was prompted initially by, by technology of the automobile, suburbanization. There were racial problems that were unique to the United States. There was an influx of drugs in the 1980s, crack cocaine. You see similar sorts of things all around the world, but the U.S. has a, a race issue that's different from what you see in other developed countries. And as you know, we've discussed many times, times, the U.S. has more guns than other countries. So when you have drug-related violence, it becomes much, much, much more violent. And so you had a real hollowing out of urban centers almost sort of everywhere. Can I stop you for one second? Yeah. So you're saying that what happened kind of mid-20th century in the U.S., what's usually, I think, called white flight, but but I think for these purposes, 
the middle and and sort of upper income folks leaving cities and moving to suburbs and exurbs, the scale of it is particularly American. That, that it is not a like a natural force of a country's development. Exactly. Or, so, yeah. so suburbanization happens everywhere because it's a technological change. But in the United States, you get a particularly intense form of it huh. where there's a real abandonment of, of central city areas. And so you created temporarily in the United States this unusual dynamic where we had a phrase, the quote unquote inner city, which is understood to mean a, a poor area, right. you know, full of, of sort of underclass people, uh, uh, racial minorities. And that concept of a quote unquote inner city. That doesn't exist in, say, Paris, right? right? No matter what happens with suburbanization in France, things like that, central Paris is the best part of Paris, right? Notre <laughs> Dame is there. The government institutions are there. Like, that's that's sort of a good place to live. Uh, so what you've had in the United States since crime started falling in the mid-90s is a return to the classic urban dynamic, which is that even though most people live in the suburbs, cars are a thing, blah, 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 in general, living proximate to downtown in a prosperous city is considered a, a good thing to do once again. And so you've seen lots of sort of changes in, in different kinds of neighborhoods. And the term... Can, can I yeah. stop you? Is there a time when people who study this kind of date the reversal of the process really beginning? I mean, does it sort of, does this begin happening on a wide enough scale that people begin talking about gentrification in the 90s? Is it early 2000s? I mean, when does this become the kind of thing that eventually ends up on the weeds. You know, really, the, the 90s is when the sort is of... When the, a real, is, is a when the, the mass trend sort of begins yeah. in the United States and when you start seeing an urban revival. I, now, you talk about gentrification in specific neighborhoods, specific mm-hmm. places, dating back to almost forever is, is one of the points I, I want to make. But if you want to talk about big macro trends, right, starting in the 90s, crime falls, you see a return to the city. You also see the demographics of the country are always shifting. We are right now... Now at a point in time when the the modal age, like the the single most common year, is in its um, early to mid twenties. So I think like twenty four, twenty five. Really? Is, yeah, that is makes the, me feel kind of old. Is, is the single most common age, and, and <laughs> right, and so people people like you are, you know, on that hump though. There's there's a lot of people your age. I'm just a couple years years older than you, but near a real sort of a. Like a nadir, right? I just want to note, I'm 31 and Matt is 33. 34. 34? Yeah. Oh, you're super old. And yeah. I'm the podcast youngin at 30. So <laughs> this is... Right. But well, boy, between another... you and me, there's a huge... Yeah. Like hump fall off. I mean, it's it's not giant, but it but it's noticeable. There's there's a gradient, right? There's there's very few people born in the late seventies, and it goes sort of up and up and up, right? right? I have another demographic question on this because one thing I've always wondered about and been too embarrassed to ask, but now I can ask Matt is how the you know age and delay in childbearing that we're seeing from generation to generation plays into this. When I think of one reason to move to the suburb, it's that you can get more space, you can get big houses with lots of bedrooms, you can have your kids and raise them there. Women are having children later than they used to, you know, even like 20, 30 years ago. How does, is that a factor you think of right. as big or not so we big? Have, or? We have more 20-somethings mm-hmm. than we used to, and fewer of them have children, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a big block of sort of the prime demographic for city living. And, and so that's created a lot more sort of interest in this mm-hmm. question, and particularly because you have 
heavy concentration of media in New York, a big sort of secondary cluster in D.C., then a kind of smaller one in San Francisco. And these are some of the main epicenters of where gentrification, to the extent that we can give it any sort of meaning, is actually happening. And I think the most important thing to know about gentrification is that most American cities are not seeing a kind of phenomenon where neighborhoods that used to be poor are becoming affluent, that in the Midwest, right, I mean, if you look at Cleveland, if you look at Cincinnati, if you look at Detroit, if you look at Toledo, right, you're seeing really a continuation of the sort of basic pattern of urban decline and, and white flight. You even look at Baltimore, because it's on the East Coast, there people talk about gentrification there, and certain neighborhoods, you know, do become hip and stuff. But if you look at Baltimore on a macro scale, people continue to be leaving there, there continues to be really high unemployment, really sort of serious poverty. Then you have Sunbelt cities, right? So San Antonio, they just keep like throwing up houses and it's very <laughs> sprawly. It doesn't have what you would consider a classical urban form. You can look at certain neighborhoods at, at Prince William or at Tobin Hill and you can see signifiers of gentrification, like there's yoga studios and, and weird coffee shops, but there's not high house prices or the things that you would consider the problems of gentrification. So we're really talking about a relatively small number of places, right? Most American cities are either having a sort of urban decline crisis or they're having a kind of unproblematic growth. But the cities where you have this happening are sort of um, economically, socially, and culturally sort of significant ones. And so in many ways, I think just to, to answer the reader's question, I think gentrification is an overstated problem in most places. So if you look at a, a paper that, that John and Matlack and, and Jacob Vigdor did, it's called Do Rising Tides Lift All Prices? And so the basic question— <laughs> I, I love academic paper names. Yeah, it's sweet. <laughs> like, what does that even tell you? Like, you would not look at that. It's so different by a headline anything on the internet. That headline does not tell me anything about what this paper is right, about. Exactly. It could be about literally any subject. I would read it, though, because they, they, they seem to have some smarts about them. <laughs> I enjoy no, their work. No, play. no. It's a, well, you know, you, but if you if It's you like search. old magazine headlines, right? Every article about legal issues would be just called Raising the Bar. Exactly, yes. They just, they just, they just, <laughs> they, get a good they're just in yeah. for the references. So anyway, they're looking at this question, which is some people say when rich people come to town, it actually makes the poor people worse off because it raises the relative price of housing, and now they have no money. That's, I would say, the conceptual concern about gentrification is when rich people show up, is that bad for incumbent workers? And it drives them out, right? I mean, that's part of the, the idea. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's one thing. Price it goes out and then they have to move. Yeah, to I mean, they, it could be that they move or it could be that, you know, they can't afford any food because they need the rent. So what they find is that in a city where the supply of housing is very constrained, you do see this immiserating gentrification, right? Where rich people come to town makes the poor people worse off. They're sort of X housing incomes fall. So like D.C., where it's very hard to build a new building, you can't build a building that's very tall. That well, and, not... and, and especially San Francisco, where the, oh, yeah. the difficulty of building extends way into the suburbs, right? D.C. is a little bit unusual because we're sort of on the 
border between Maryland and Virginia. And Virginia has a sort of a, a southern political economy. So the, the suburbs keep sprawling out there. But like Boston, New York, San Francisco, the housing supply does not expand. And uh, working class people actually can wind up worse off because the price of housing goes up. And the metric for worse off is that they're spending more of their money on rent or? That the increase the... in housing costs exceeds the increase in income, okay. right? Uh, but then they can, find... can we stop there for one yeah. minute, though? Because I think something's just hidden in what you said. The argument for this is that cities are very productive. People in them make higher incomes. When rich people move into cities, they spend a lot more money. So there, there could be a, a secondary effect. Right, where, where you have more economic you have people, opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And so the question of is your income rising faster than your cost is a real one here, right? Because right. there's an effect on both ends. Right. And so then what they find is that in looser markets, they call them slack markets, this doesn't happen. And it's good when rich people move to town, right? So if you're living in, in San Antonio, which I talked about, and, and some people decide, oh, city living's cool. Like, let's Let's go move downtown, and then they open up the yoga studios, they open up the coffee shops. That just means more jobs. You can be a barista. You can teach in the yoga studio. And it's win-win. That's most of America. And it's important to keep in mind that those slack markets are the majority of the markets in the country. And so it's not true that on a national basis, there's a quote-unquote problem of gentrification. It's a localized problem that exists in specific places, but I suspect places that a lot of Weeds listeners live in, <laughs> and certainly places that a lot of Weeds hosts live in. So it's, it's <laughs> worth talking about, but it's also worth sort of keeping in mind the limits to it, right? That in Midwestern cities in particular, I, I think the mayors there and, and the residents would love to have this quote-unquote issue of fancy people are moving to town and they want weird boutiques. Um, well, because well, it's good. Something about the political economy of that, though, which I, I think is interesting to note, is that if you had a problem where the policy mechanisms were national, but the issue only existed in like five cities, right, or ten cities, it would not seem like a very big deal for Congress, right? Because Congress has a lot of problems it needs to focus on first that affect almost all cities, right? What is going to happen with disability insurance or right. the budget or infrastructure or whatever. But here, the for the most part, if, I, if I'm not wrong, the policy mechanisms are state and local yes. that you would use to address this. So it creates a, a situation where it really is a very important topic to talk about in these particular cities because the geographic area of the problem and the political space for a solution are actually unified, which is not right. true for all issues. Yeah. And so so Jason Furman, the sort of chief White House uh, economist, he gave a talk recently at the Urban Institute that was about housing policy and, and housing costs. And, you know, and he argued that it sort of adds up to a national scale problem because mm. even though the cities where it's an issue are not that numerous – they tend to be the wealthiest and most productive ones. And then, you know, he gets to the end where you're supposed to have solutions. And, you know, that's always the hardest part of anything, <laughs> right? But in his particular case, I mean, it's it's particularly a lame one because there's just not a federal policy mechanism. They're sort of in, I guess, a lame duck phase over there and they're mouthing off about <laughs> issues that they think are significant. The YOLO it's, phase of the Obama well, presidency. you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's like they, they could start doing a podcast or, or something. <laughs> they, they, they don't have a bill. I, I think Barack Obama would actually be a very good podcaster. Do you know David Axelrod has a good podcast? Yeah, I, I think This Obama. is already beginning, so maybe him and him and Axe can begin a sort of... Well, or he Obama join has, the weeds. Obama has a lot of clout, podcast. I think, to book guests, which would, which would help him. But so one thing I do want to say is that... It, 
what you find if you sort of search the economics literature for gentrification is a lot of people want to use that word because they know it's something that people connect with. But the phenomenon that people most seem to have in mind when they talk about gentrification is not just the idea of sort of a, an income squeeze, metro area-wide, but of actually people being forced out right. of neighborhoods. And there's not a ton of research on whether this actually happens. And it's a little bit hard to study because, as we have noted several times before, the government data collection is not always that clear about this kind of issue. But a guy named Lance Freeman wrote a book called There Goes the Hood that's more of a sociological or anthropological look at gentrification. And so he studies two neighborhoods in New York, Clinton Hill in Brooklyn and, and Harlem, where we sort of know by convention gentrification is occurring. And he does a lot of interviews and field work to try to understand mm. what's happening. And he finds that there isn't actually displacement of people. What he finds is that low-income individuals in general have much more unstable housing tenure than middle class or, or high income people. Uh, for one thing, they tend not to own a home, right? And so if you're a renter, you may have to come and go as part of negotiations, things like that. Low income people also tend to have less stable lives in general. They're less likely to be married. They're less likely to have stable long-term employment. So they move a lot. And, and what he finds is that in a poor neighborhood that isn't gentrifying, you just have lots of poor people coming in and out of units and being replaced by other poor people. And in a neighborhood that is gentrifying, what you have is that when poor people leave, they tend to get replaced by less poor people. Huh. But there isn't actually a higher rate of turnover. So the neighborhood does change, but the, the mechanism is not what people think exactly. exactly. So the neighborhood does change in its overall income distribution or its income composition. But the issue is not – poor people being driven out. It is replacement. It's just poor, it's people, poor people move a lot. Yeah. Although, and so what gentrification consists of is the frequently moving poor people being replaced by middle class people. Now, to be clear, he's just looking at two particular neighborhoods. You have other parts of the country. For example, in Massachusetts, there used to be very strict rent control laws, and then the state legislature in the mid-90s scrapped them. So it seems... I wish he had done a sociological study of what happened there. That seems like maybe a more plausible candidate for an actual displacement. In San Francisco, they have very strict tenant protection laws, very strict rent control laws, and then different kinds of mechanisms through which landlords can evade those sorts of laws. So looking at what's the exact balance of power there, you know, could be interesting. But he's studying New York. I think it's the sort of the baseline case. It's just poor people move very frequently when neighborhoods, quote unquote, gentrify, it's not so much that poor people leave at an accelerated rate as that they stop coming in. One thing I wonder about with that study, I don't know if it addresses this, where they're moving to and how that affects their lives. So like I think of the area I live in DC, which is called Mount Pleasant, and I think fits, you know, what most people think of as a gentrifying neighborhood. And it's becoming harder and harder to live anywhere near that area. That's what they think of as a gentrified neighborhood. Gentrified. Oh, <laughs> I know. See, oh, so, right. So no one wants to be the gentrified. Or so I'm like, no, no, no. It's still. In I it. think it's still gentrifying until Hades closes. Right. Yes. I, I would agree with that statement. I think uh, when Hades began having the sort of musical acts it has. The, the well, that, that that's when it starts gentrifying, <laughs> right? When it used to just be a Salvadoran restaurant, it was like real. Right. Well, setting, setting my views on gentrification Mount Pleasant aside, but one thing I think about there is I think one thing that matters is, like, where are you moving? Can you move to, like, a neighborhood that's just as easy to get to work? Are you only able to afford some place that's an hour further commute? I don't know if the study gets 
into no, it. I mean, but he, even in that instability, it seems like there's a big difference between moving, you know, 10 minutes and moving an hour. Right. I mean, that's why I think the more sort of econometric study about tight markets versus loose markets is relevant here. Because what you see in a place like D.C., where at least the central city does not add a ton of net new housing, when people go, (laughs) the problem, as you say, it's not so much that they've been forced out of their neighborhood, but that the next place to go (laughs) might be dramatically different. Whereas in a place where lots and lots and lots of new houses are being built, it stands to reason that you can find some new accommodation that is, it's not going to be identical in terms of the commute or the neighborhood mix, but broadly speaking, sort of similar. So there is a real cost. It's just, it's not quite the cost that people think that it is. But then the other things that you hear a lot about gentrification, not just from, say, working class minority people, but from young, college-educated white professionals, who this is the 18 months after you moved in kind of thing. And one just reality is that people move to neighborhoods often because they like the neighborhood. And then the neighborhood changes, and they just don't like the fact that it changes, right? The lament of the New Yorker. Yeah, the lament of the New Yorker, the lament of... So I I live in, in Logan Circle, which for a time, I mean, it's changed a lot, but for a time was sort of a gay neighborhood. And it's not as much that as it used to be. And I know some gay men who live in the neighborhood and who came there when it was an exciting epicenter of gay Washington life are just sad that there's all these lame breeders like me (laughs) pushing our strollers around. And, you know, it's hard to say whether that kind of thing is a policy crisis. Like, I I sort of feel it, too. Like, I don't like it when places I used to like going to close down and are replaced by other places. But people tend to underestimate, I think, when they talk about these things, how much all urban neighborhoods change and sort of have always changed. In New York, I hear people talking about such and such neighborhood that it's like this historically Latino neighborhood and now it's being ruined by all these hipsters. And it's like, that's just where my grandmother grew up. (laughs) You know, it was a historically Jewish neighborhood before it was this and that. And part of what big cities, particularly big American coastal cities have always been is entry points for people, particularly for immigrants, right? And the neighborhoods, you can have a a certain stable character to them, that it's a neighborhood where people who are new to the city often kind of move. And then as they establish themselves, they may move, as Sarah was saying, to the suburbs, right? They may move deeper into the American mainstream, right, in in the Midwest, things like that, as, as generations sort of move on. Because populations change over time, right? If New York's Little Italy had remained over the course of the century a heavily Italian neighborhood, in one sense, that would have been the same, right? Because now what's happened is Little Italy has become less Italian. It's like Chinese now. But the Italian-American population has changed a lot over the course of the century. That's the main reason they left there. And so even if they had stayed, it wouldn't have been the same as it was. It wouldn't be an Italian immigrant neighborhood because there aren't immigrants from Italy to populate an Italian immigrant neighborhood. It would probably have more pizzerias, but it would still be the case that the Italian-American population is more educated and more affluent to be heavily employed in the pizzeria sector, (laughs) you you know, the the way that they are. So 
it's hard to think of a policy mechanism that would create the sense of neighborhood stability that I think people psychologically crave. You can address the income immiseration effect by having laxer zoning so people can add more housing more quickly. And that's what you see in the research. But to the extent that what people don't like about gentrification is the change, looser zoning makes it worse. You can handle the income effects by allowing more construction and more investment, but that means that the city changes more rapidly. So there's a real tension between the sort of concern for the poor aspect of gentrification and the I want my city to be a certain way aspect of it. I want to uh, focus on the concern for the poor and abstract this out a little bit because what, what you're talking about here is a kind of continuous policy discussion wherein some kind of process that is reasonably economically efficient, trade is a very good example here, will we'll, we'll begin and it will have displacement effects. People will lose jobs. There will be, even if there are overall winners, there will be losers, right? And the question that comes up a lot in, in a number of different areas of policymaking is how do you permit these kinds of overall efficient mechanisms to, to proceed while also having policies that try to take some of the gains of the process and redistribute them to the, the people who are made worse off by it. And you know something you've talked about before that I've always thought is a really eye-opening point is, is you've written that for much of sort of the 70s and 80s and 90s, we had an affordable housing policy that consisted of very, very, very high crime neighborhoods, right? That we had neighborhoods that were so dangerous and bleak and, and unpleasant to live in that Rents in them just couldn't get very high. And that was a way that you could keep those neighborhoods' rents low. Now, you wouldn't want to go back to that, right? You wouldn't want your anti gentrification policy to be a targeted campaign of burglaries. Right. But the question then is okay, well, what do you do? Because I think uh, to some degree, the anger is that for reasons that are and re- remain a little bit mysterious, the crime wave dropped. Right. And so that kind of kicked off a process of these areas becoming much safer, much more desirable. You had young people begin to move in. There is certainly anecdotally some displacement. I thought the, your, your point about the sociological study is interesting, but nevertheless, the way people experience that, the way they experience leaving because rents are going up and very different kind of family moves in is an, is an angry experience. As Sarah says, they often have to move out further. So what do you do? What is your amelioration wish list? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, a few different ways to, to think about it. And so one one is one case is you have the constrained housing stock, right? And that really is comparable to the free trade dynamic, right? The city gets richer because more affluent people come in, but it is harmful to some of the poorest residents of the city. So you could address that through redistribution, right? You could have a, a tax and transfer scheme to compensate people of, of different kinds. And there's sort of political problems with that, but you could do it. The other approach is to change the zoning policy. So you have more construction. That turns it into a win-win, right? The studies show in in places with lax development rules, when affluent people move in, it economically benefits everybody. But you accelerate the pace of sort of culture shock and like, oh, weirdness. Um, And so my preference is to just lean into that and just say that, you know what? Cities are dynamic, changing places. They are not historical boutique museums, and we need to let them change, let them breathe, let them grow. But when you're thinking on a more sort of concrete level, I I would say one thing that people should be more mindful of where their sort of practical behavior tends to be separate from their 
political behavior, is thinking about what kinds of amenities they want to see the city government going and investing in. Because part of what sort of unleashes gentrification cascades is that urban economics are all about clusters, right? It's like things are close to each other. And so it depends what you want to be close to and what you what you care about. And so when you have a city government invest in things that sort of affluent yuppies are likely to care about, like bicycle lanes and dog parks, the tendency is to increase the thing where, you know, rich people are willing to pay a premium for that, mm-hmm. but poor mm-hmm. people don't experience it as a huge improvement in their actual quality of life. And so it's just a kind of immiserating sort of dynamic. Whereas conversely, if the high schools get better, right, that does make a neighborhood more appealing to certain sets of of more affluent people. But it also makes it more appealing to to lower income people. And school quality is actually more important to people from low socioeconomic status families for a whole variety of reasons. But so there you may see an increase in costs, but it's proportional to an actual benefit that, you know, is is going to be received by people. So, you know, having some thought to that, right, the quality of your bus service, the quality of the high schools, right, the city services. And, and on the bus stuff, it, it often seems that Richer people have a lower opinion of buses compared to other kinds of public transportation, transportation, compared to subways, compared to streetcars, compared to light rail systems, compared to all kinds of things that somehow feel more fun to to, to richer people. But buses are really important. Cities will pretty explicitly say that the reason they are investing money in mixed traffic streetcars that don't run any faster than buses is that they're hoping to, they will say, spark economic development, which is to say they're hoping to create gentrification. Which is not crazy if you're talking about a Midwestern city that is lacking in in investment and stuff. But if you're talking about Washington, where we've built a streetcar, but also where mayor after mayor says they're concerned about affordable housing and also they're not changing the zoning, it doesn't add up. And and you have to think, why do we want to spend taxpayer dollars to make scarce housing be more occupied by wealthy people if we're saying we're worried that poor people are being squeezed out. The best solution to this really is to build more places for for people to live. It, It works out pretty nicely. But I guess my main bottom line that I want everyone to take away from this is that there is no way to freeze neighborhoods in place and time. And there's particularly no way to freeze neighborhoods, but then also make them better. Right. Right. Which is like the paradoxical thing that people want. Nobody looks at a neighborhood that is super segregated, overwhelmingly poor, no jobs, no economic opportunity, and says, well, you know what's awesome about this is that we don't have a gentrification. (laughs) You, You look at those neighborhoods and people recognize, so something has to change, right? The city services have to get better. There has to be more investment. There has to be some businesses. There has to be some jobs. Ideally, you would like to see some mix of braces and classes living there. But that means that the neighborhood has to change. And letting the built environment change is the easiest way to make that change be something that's compatible with, with everybody's interests. That makes sense. All right. Thank you for that. That, that was super interesting. Boom. I enjoyed that. Boom. We're gentrifying. <laughs> Speaking of moving into new neighborhoods, though, and trying to sort of upscale them a bit, there's going to be a new sort of weed spinoff podcast launching. 
See how I did that? That was very smooth. Pretty good, right? It's exciting. What kind of <laughs> So I'm going to be doing a sort of long-form interview podcast you know, focused on, on politics. I've done a couple of these through the Weeds channel, the Arthur Brooks interview. He's the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Just this week, I released a Ben Bernanke interview on the channel. But, you know, I want to be able to do that without clogging this channel. I sometimes want to do it in around people and topics that are not very weedsy. So I'm going to be, be starting a different podcast for it. I will let you all know when it, when it happens. But the reason I bring it up here is one of the things I kind of want to do with this interview podcast is try to demystify some of the important sort of structural factors that go into political outcomes. And, and, and one of the ones that I think is really poorly understood, both it's good and it's bad, is lobbying. So one of the the, the first interviews is going to be with a, a pretty significant DC lobbyist. And I'd love if Weeds listeners who have questions about this wanted to send them. Uh, you can reach us at weeds at box.com. And if you have things that confuse you about lobbying or things about how the process actually works, like in its very kind of granular detail that you'd like to know more about, let me know and I may be able to get you some firsthand answers. Fantastic. While we await that, we've been chewing over some pretty late-breaking, under cover of night, weedsy policy news that is occurring. Indeed. And I think, I think Sarah knows something about I, it. I know a few things. So big news here in Washington, while Republicans were holding a debate in Las Vegas, the House posted at 2 a.m. on Wednesday a 2,000-page budget deal that is essentially the agreement to fund the government through fiscal year 2016. This is very important right now because the government is just about to run out of money. They don't have a bill that provides the many, many programs the federal government runs with the money to do the things that they do. One of the kind of interesting, um, notable things about this bill is that it's going to cost, depending on who you ask, about $650 to $700 billion, that it's raising the deficit by that amount. So it's getting a little bit of pushback from Republicans, but it seems very certain to pass. So you would know this better than I do, and I'm not, I'm not as read in on this as I, as I normally want to be, but... So what they're doing is they're doing a tremendous amount of tax cutting, basically. They're taking a bunch of tax credits and tax breaks that, you know, often kind of don't get extended every year, but it's always a little bit unclear whether or not they will. So it becomes kind of a fight that ends up, you know, being pushed through. So like the business R&D tax credit is a really good example of that. But they're taking a bunch of these tax cuts and tax credits and putting some long-term certainty behind them by just extending them out into the future for, for a couple of years. That's attached to the spending bill. This is part of the, the is, sort of broader spending bill. And then yes. they've just sort of latched on this giant, completely fiscally irresponsible <laughs> tax cut bill. That appears to be the situation, yes. And they're also starting to tackle some new things. So this bill, in my view, is someone who writes about Obamacare a lot – really is the biggest changes we've seen to Obamacare since the law passed in 2010. It includes a two-year delay of the Cadillac tax, which is the tax on high-cost health insurance plans. That's supposed to start in 2018. It would get pushed to 2020. And one of the more bizarre things in it is it pauses a few taxes. So there's two taxes, a tax on medical devices, like um, you know, if you get a knee replacement, the metal prosthetic they put in your knee, and a tax on health insurance plans, those have already started, and those will get paused. Um, the medical device tax has a two-year pause in the deal, and health insurance tax has a one-year pause in the deal. 
which I'm quite surprised with. Usually if you can't stop something, you know, like the Cadillac text is kind of a traditional delay where you just push it into the future. Hoping that it will never happen. Hoping it will never happen. The medical device tax, there's a huge fight about it when it started in 2013. Medical device lobbyists lost. And now they've had this amazing victory where they came back and are convinced Congress just to, you know, kill the tax for two years, which could, you know, like the Cadillac tax, lead to an infinite delay. And it really seems like this budget deal opens up a lot of space to attack and reduce and get rid of these parts of the law that are very, very important for paying for the insurance. Something, I think, a piece of the conceptual background here is that there is a phrase in Congress and in political journalism that is called tax extenders, right? And so what is done here is that they passed the quote-unquote tax extenders. And as you can tell from the the name tax extenders, the implication is that they will be extended, right? And so these are tax credits that are formally scheduled to sunset, but that Congress routinely extends. And so that's that's why they get called tax extenders. And what happens when something gets labeled a tax extender is that psychologically and right. sociologically, extending them doesn't increase the budget deficit. I mean, obviously it does in reality, <laughs> but it's like it's baked into the cake. So many of the tax extenders actually expired last year. But because they were called tax extenders, it just got in the conversation that they might be retroactively extended this year, which is what happened. So like this research and development tax credit, it hasn't been in effect all throughout 2015. But Congress is not only putting it in for the future, but they're doing it backwards, right? Because it's so taken for granted. And so part of what makes this such a bad sign for the medical device tax and for the Cadillac tax is that by putting those delays in with the other tax extenders, they themselves become tax extenders. Right. And one thing that's notable about it is that you can do a tax extender in either direction is kind of what you're saying, right? Right. Like you can do a tax extender that is an affirmative tax cut, right? The business R&D credit. Or you can do a tax extender that is a delay of an affirmative tax increase, which is what the catalog tax is or or, or some of these others are. And so once something gets sort of considered an extender, it's like the the presumption Mm -hmm. becomes – that the extension will happen, and and particularly for something podcast. for something like that, like the the medical <laughs> medical device tax, right? You know, the the issue here is that this was part of Obamacare, and so Democrats were like, we're for it, but actually, a lot of Democrats weren't really for it, or at least had a lot of pressure from from constituents. Um, the medical device industry is largely located in Massachusetts and in Minnesota, mm-hmm. which are both Democratic states. Not all Democrats, but many Democrats were sort of like looking for an opportunity to do this without making a big fight or like betraying the president or something like that. So getting it into a sort of a big package. And the same with the Cadillac tax or the health insurance tax, where you look at there's some really interesting Kaiser Family Foundation polling on this, where you, you know, ask people about specific provisions of the ACA and, you know, everyone loves expanding insurance. Everyone loves ending pre-existing conditions. Then you ask, you know, well, what do you think about a tax on your health benefits? And like, (laughs) you can probably guess what people think. They don't like it. And I think this shows, you know, this budget deal suggests that the ACA, which has been able to stave off these attacks, is quite vulnerable to um, reductions in its revenue, which could ultimately play out in 
changes to the benefits of the law, what it's able to offer the people. But, or maybe not. I mean, it could also just play out in an increase in the deficit, which is what sure. all this other stuff is doing. I want to make a couple of disconnected observations here because I think that procedurally what has happened here is really, really interesting because this is the first big test of the Paul Ryan speakership, right? This is the first really big bill Paul Ryan is pushing through. And here's what is happening in this bill. It was announced <laughs> late at night during a Republican debate, right? It was announced at the time when it would get the least possible coverage. It was actually a very smart political strategy, but there's no fucking way it was an accident. They could definitely have waited till morning. Right. You waited when like <laughs> Donald Trump was on CNN. Right. Yes. And then we're like, by the way, I have a 2000 page bill. So that was really interesting. Another thing is that there is already grumbling that it is a 2000 page bill. It has been negotiated, you know, pretty secretly. And it's going to be pushed through pretty quickly. And and one thing Republicans, you know, now going back to Obamacare, where this became a big talking point, even though Obamacare was actually around for like, you know, a long time while people debated it. But one thing Republicans have really talked about and have really criticized Democrats for is this idea that there's these huge bills. They have a lot of pages and members are expected to vote on them before they can be properly understood. And this bill is showing that exact same kind of backroom deal making, just jam it through in order to get the votes kind of thing. Now, it may be the Republicans decide they like this bill and they don't actually care about these procedural questions. But this has definitely been a very big talking point on, right? This is not how they want business done. This was a criticism of John Boehner. And now Paul Ryan looks to be doing exactly the same thing. The next thing is that Paul Ryan, the kind of great deficit hawk of the Republican Party, the first big thing he does is a massive deficit increase, right? In Paul Ryan's budgets, if you if you kind of go into the innards of them, they always have this huge, you know, what, what you would call sort of in, in budget land, a magic asterisk, which is, you know, they actually do to their credit or discredit, depending on how you feel about the, the individual cuts, but they really do specify spending cuts to a pretty reasonable level of detail. I mean, they don't go down to the program level, but it does say, here's how we're going to restrain Medicare growth by, you know, taking these vouchers and capping how quickly they expand. Here's how much we're going to cut this budget function by. Here's how much we're going to cut that budget function by. But they also tend to include a massive tax reform in them that sharply lowers rates, eliminates a bunch of different taxes. But Paul Ryan will just say, and we will make up for it on the other side, that he'll just say, we're not defining how we're going to do this, but in order to get here, we're going to have it be revenue neutral. We're going to specify the different loopholes and tax breaks and tax deductions that we're going to close, and it's just going to happen later. And here, I think you kind of have an example of what happens when the rubber hits the road on that, which is it just doesn't happen, right? They are just creating a bunch of tax cuts, and they're just not going to pay for it. And when it came down to it, the tax cuts were just much more important to Paul Ryan and to the Republican Party than the deficit concerns. So I think as a, as a kind of statement about the Paul Ryan speakership, this is a pretty interesting first bill, right? I, I think it is very different than what a lot of Republicans say they have wanted in a new speaker. I think it's very different than often what Paul Ryan has said he wants in the federal government. And, you know, I think it's a real sort of lesson in where priorities lie. Now, I, I should say that some of this stuff probably predates Ryan. Some of these wheels might have been in motion from Boehner, but, but a lot of this is really optional. Although, you know, one thing I think about there, you know, particularly on the Obamacare stuff, it is like entirely plausible that they could have picked off some like pretty arcane, you know, premium related provisions. They could have found ways to like match these cuts with benefits scale backs that they could have. But they couldn't get Democratic votes for it. They couldn't get Democratic votes for it. But maybe, you know, there are places, you know, this is really in the weeds, there are places where with the MAGI adjustment, which I don't even remember what it stands for, where Democrats have gotten behind these like pretty in the weeds cuts to Obamacare. 
So there is some precedent to at least try or play with like reducing the benefits as you reduce the revenue. But like you said, you see no effort. Well, well, so one interesting thing, I'm bill. sorry to cut, just one last real quick point on this, Matt, is that a fascinating thing about this bill is this bill actually makes Obamacare a better deal for a lot of powerful constituencies. The political economy oh, yeah. of this bill is interesting in that it makes insurers more favorable to mm-hmm. Obamacare. It makes medical device manufacturers more favorable to Obamacare. It makes unions more favorable to Obamacare. It makes employers more favorable to Obamacare. And if your long-term political interest is in destroying Obamacare, it is actually not clear to me that, that this bill is a great idea. Well, so two points on that. One is that by taking out Obamacare revenue provisions with Democratic votes, Mm -hmm. you do set the stage for making Obamacare repeal into a deficit reducer rather than a deficit increaser, which it previously was. So in a sense, you've strengthened the political coalition behind Obamacare. But but not if you only do delays. It's worth noting, when you're talking about what CBO is going to say, CBO is going to come back and say, well, the Cadillac tax is expected to come into full force two years or three years from now. Right. So you would have to actually repeal the bills to get that change in the baseline. But I would say that it's it's not just that you've inserted some way strengthen the coalition behind it. But you see from Paul Ryan the real return with a vengeance of purely transactional congressional politics here. In addition to all this tax cuts and, and stuff like that, another thing that was in the mix was that something that was scheduled to expire was renewable energy production tax credits. And for a while, Republicans had just been okay with these kinds of things because, you know, it doesn't take anything away from people, you know, who Republicans care about and, you know, solar energy companies are, that's a kind of business too. And, you know, they, they like businesses, but Republicans had become sort of more ideological and more invested in the fossil fuel industry's worldview, things like that. And they were going to get rid of this, but they decided not to get rid of it. They instead struck a deal where the renewable energy credits are extended and in exchange, the ban on oil exports is lifted, right? Which is, fine, but it's like, that's like a deal in the most classical sense, right? There was something the oil industry wanted and there was something the solar industry wanted. So they just both got what they wanted rather than having a kind of a principled conceptual argument about, are we going to develop fossil fuel resources or are we going to develop renewable energy? They just kind of sat down with the key interest group players and found a way to say yes to everyone. And, you know, you see something a little bit similar in in the tax thing that the Obama administration had put in the stimulus bill, his earned income tax tax credit, beefing up, and uh, refundable child tax credit, basically things to give money to poor people. Um, And they were scheduled to expire. And there were all these business credits that were also scheduled to expire. So what they agreed to do here was let Obama get his tax credits for the poor and let the Republicans get their tax credits for business, right? Don't have a principles-based argument about what do you want the government to do. Just kind of get in a room and give people what they want. And it's in a lot of ways a more functional kind of politics, right? You don't have these big apocalyptic showdowns. When people are just arguing about how much and for whom, you can sort of strike a deal, right? And you can say, look, if Democrats controlled the Senate, this deal would probably be tilted a little bit more to liberal priorities. But they don't, so it's it's a little less. But it's more it's more grubby. It's more distasteful. And it's very antithetical to the kind of politics that Paul Ryan as an individual sort of built his profile on. He was 
originally became a rising star as part of this sort of Tea Party wave of more ideological, more sort of principled, more quote-unquote honest sort of views, what he's actually delivered is more what the sort of negative stereotype of John Boehner as like a K Street operator and, and deal cutter was. Well, let me, let me push this because I think it's a very interesting point about Ryan. I, I think that actually doesn't quite get him right in, in one way. So, so first it's worth saying Ryan well predates the Tea Party. I mean his sort of early – he gets some early prominence being a social security privatizer back in 05. Mm-hmm. His first set of big budgets happens before the Tea Party ever happens. So, so he is kind of going back. But you're right that he, he really does make a name as a purer kind of conservative reformer willing to follow the sort of ideology and philosophical principles further than most Republicans are. And, and I agree on that. But one reason Ryan has ended up having such an unusual place in American politics, and one reason he ended up being the only Republican who could bridge the gap between the sort of conservative Tea Party Freedom Caucus side and the establishmentarian Boehner, what is it called, the Tuesday group, uh, the moderate Republicans, the Tuesday Caucus yeah. side, is that he's always had both groups in him. He's always been something of a reasonably good deal maker. So on the one hand, he has these budgets. On the other hand, he worked with uh, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, who's a Democrat and is you know one of these Democrats who really is good at sort of coming up with wonkish coalitions with Republicans to create a scaled down version of his premium support proposal. So – yeah, there have always been the, ideological there, deal. Right? I mean, no, no, just, I understand, but there have always been these two sides in Ryan, which is one, the kind of philosophical ideologue, and two, the kind of young establishmentarian who people like working with and, and you know is is able to sort of be more of a moderate and be more of a go along to get along guy when he needs to. Ryan was both well respected by conservative reformers in the House, but also he's very, very, very close to John Boehner, like very close to John Boehner. And it's John Boehner who calls him and begs him to be speaker. And it's not because Boehner thinks Ryan is going to run a very different speakership ideologically. Ryan Lizza had a great recent article in The New Yorker. He does a great job reporting out the coup against Boehner. And one of the sub-themes of the article is – these kind of Freedom Caucus sort of hardcore conservative players are saying, Paul Ryan is not going to get a honeymoon here. He's going to have to show us he's different than John Boehner. He's going to have to get conservative policy really on the books in a way John Boehner didn't in order to keep his job. And I am very curious to see if this counts for them, if this counts as him being like John Boehner or by delaying some pieces of Obamacare and, and getting some tax cuts, this counts as not being like John Boehner. Because either Paul Ryan and, – and this goes to the, the sort of core point I'm making uh, on your perception, Matt. One version of this is they come to see Paul Ryan as a grubby dealmaker. He's John Boehner with a beard. The other way to see Paul Ryan is that he actually understands in a way John Boehner didn't what the sort of conservative, you know, the hardcore conservative wing of the party really wants and that what they wanted all along was just fuck the deficit, tax cuts, anything that takes apart a piece of Obamacare and that Ryan, by actually having a much better sense of that, is delivering a deal that they are going to feel much better going home and selling to their constituents. And I actually don't know which one is right, but Ryan is sort of a weird figure that he's so far been able to figure out both sides pretty well. And this might be the kind of grubby deal-making that the Freedom Caucus ends up feeling good about. Although, now, maybe not. I, well, I genuinely don't know the answer here. One um, reason to suspect they won't feel good about it is one of the bizarre things you're seeing on the Obamacare changes is they're actually not popular with the super conservative groups who say 
just a delay kind of accepts Obamacare as law, like anything short of repeal is a bad idea because it doesn't get rid of these things. I already got a press release from Heritage Action this morning, which is one of kind of the ultra conservative yeah. groups urging conservatives to vote no on this deal. Oh, for really? This particular- All right. So that, that, having said that, I would have left and tried to see what Heritage Action said. Ah, well, so that is a so, helpful. That is helpful in showing that well, I was wrong I'm, and that I, was I, right I, like, I in real think, time. I think that the <laughs> conceptual breakthrough that Paul Ryan made here was that coming from a place of somewhat greater trust with conservatives, he gave them the knife looking them in the eye. The John Boehner used to do this thing where he would come out of the caucus meetings and he'd be like, yeah, we're not passing this bill unless it bans abortion and this and that and the other thing. And Paul Ryan never did any of that. He kind of suggested that maybe they would do something on refugees, but he never promised that they would. He never promised that they would defund Planned I'm not sure if we know it. Maybe I just missed it. But the refugee stuff is out of this bill. Right. Nothing is in the bill. I mean, there's lots in the bill. But there's no big ideological thunderbolts that have nothing to do with anything. The closest thing to a... Is Planned Parenthood defunding in this bill? No. no. They no. just didn't... Yeah, wow. they didn't touch it at all. They, they just didn't do huh. any of that stuff, right? So, And Ryan didn't pretend that he was going to do, right? Ryan went in to cut a deal with congressional Democrats where the objective was to deliver some wins for some groups that Republicans like, and he did that. You know, and like you don't have to like the bill if you're a hardcore conservative, but Ryan did what he said he was going to do. It is true that oil producers are excited about this bill because it lifts the oil ban. It is true that businesses are glad that they are getting a retroactive extension, right? So it's supposed to be an incentive to do R&D, but you can't have a retroactive incentive. It's just a check, right? The R&D has already been done. So you can tell, you can ask your accountant, like, how much money are we just getting for no reason from this bill? And it's some amount of money, right? And you can ask the businessmen in your district, like how excited they are about this. And you can you can like it or you can not like it, but it delivers the wins for the groups that it delivers wins for. And it just didn't aspire to do these other things. There was none of this funny business where you pass some crazy bill that Obama was obviously not going to sign. Then you spend eight days insisting that it's like inconceivable that any other kind of bill is going to do it. He went into the room. He hashed out the secret deal. I mean, which is how Boehner did this stuff in the end anyway. Yeah. But it was all he did was go in and make the secret deal. But I I think it is certainly more um, honorable. People have less of a sense of betrayal about this kind of thing. And to an extent, it puts the onus on more hardcore conservatives. But it's worth saying for a moment why Boehner did it that way, right? Boehner used to talk about having to, quote unquote, educate his members. And the point of the first deal, the one that would never pass, is to show that Mm -hmm. either they wanted to shut down the government or they had to do something different. There wasn't a kind of secret political strategy that if only they had been tough guys, then the Senate and the White House would have buckled. And, you know, one thing we'll see here is whether or not Painter did educate the members on that, right? right. Whether or not – when you hear conservatives talk about Paul Ryan, and, and, and this is in Liz's piece, and Liz and I talked about it and, and did this interview on, on Fox.com, a great website about it. Where it was all about this idea that, you know, they still have very, very, very optimistic ideas about what they can get done in American politics without a veto-proof congressional majority or the White House. And 
this deal relies on – it either relies on, uh, as I was saying earlier in the Heritage Action, thinks the justice is wrong. It either relies on Paul Ryan understanding an ideological space exists that John Boehner didn't right. and, and them being able to sell this based on hurting Obamacare and other things. Or it relies on them having you know, somehow ratcheted down their expectations of what is possible to do from the House. And uh, until this very second, there has been no evidence that, that has happened, right? Getting Boehner out was all about this belief that if you had someone who was more aggressive, it'd be different. And one thing Liz has said, talked about a lot in, in his piece and to me, is that when he talked with the Freedom Caucus folks, what they said to him over and over was that this was really an issue of process, that they were willing to vote for deals they didn't like, but the deals had to be done out in the open. There had to be time for them to read them and understand them and go back home and sell them. And none of that is happening here. No. So if the Freedom Caucus believes what they say they believe and what they told Ryan they believed, they're going to hate this deal. Right. And Ryan's speakership will begin with a huge fight with him. And maybe that's the way Ryan wants it, right? Maybe he wants to show he can survive that fight. But Well, and I think it's to an extent about educating the members in an opposite direction, which is that if at the end of the day, the deals that pass have to be passed primarily with the votes of House Democrats, which has been the case, that means you can't even talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, right? Like that's a total, total non-start. Right. The only way to get more conservative bills written would be for conservative members to vote for the bills, which they have not been willing to, to sort of do historically. And, you know, to, to an extent, I think that you are seeing a, a little bit of the breaking of the fever that Obama said he was hoping would happen in 2013 if he, if he won re-election, coming very late. But a sort of a ratcheting down, not necessarily of aspirations of, of the Freedom Caucus, but within the conservative movement of just a willingness to look ahead to 2016 and the presidential election of 2016 and just care a little bit less yeah. about this Capitol Hill drama, right? That heritage action shtick is like sending these releases around and trying to gin up some donations and presumably some House backbenchers will send out angry press releases and vote against it. But we did have a Republican debate. Ted Cruz could have stood up there and given some long speech about the treason of the Republican congressional leaders and the importance of standing with Ted Cruz. And he, he didn't do that. He wasn't super invested in the idea of throwing a wrench in the works of congressional deal making. Well, he may have not, not have known right. this was happening while well, he was on stage. I'm going to give him no, the benefit it, of the but doubt. It, people on knew that the negotiation was happening. Sure. Right? He yep. could have said they're meeting behind closed doors. They're not telling the people, right? But he just he's moved on. And my guess is that he will not vote for this deal as a senator. I'm hoping Donald Trump has some good tweets about this deal today. <laughs> that <laughs> would be great. That is my dream. We need, we need, some, we need, some, we need some Trump. I, I just think that it is a 2016 sucking up the emotional oxygen yeah. of the political process and allowing a more bloodless kind of politics to happen in Congress. But he, there's a great fundamental irony that the sort of – Results have come by going, as you said, like all the way back on transparency type stuff, right? That there's been Democrats and Republicans for years have been talking about how they want like a more open process. They want more input. They want people to be able to offer amendments. And they've 
ended up doing things, I mean, not just with this deal, right, but with the, the disability sort of budget framework agreement that happened a couple months ago. A lot has gotten done in Congress in 2015, and it's all happened under cover of absolute secrecy by a handful of top leaders with yeah. no input from members and no input from, like, the public. Speaking of 2016, that's actually a pretty good segue into our paper of the week. Yes. Yes, it is. So the paper of the week is about floating voters, which I guess is the same as swing voters. It is more or less the same as swing voters, yeah. And the idea is that a a floating voter is like in a classical election concept. You have a bunch of people who are like, they sometimes vote for the Democrat, they sometimes vote for the Republican. A new election is starting and they're open-minded and want to listen to what people have to say and make up their minds because their perception is that it's a new dawn in America. And so we sort of start from scratch and and listen to everyone's ideas. And and relatedly, they're very embedded in this is a pretty inattentive, right? That, that you have these two giant blocks of people who know what the parties believe, who know what is the difference between the two parties. And they say, well, look, I am pro-life and I think taxes should be lower and I think the government has gotten too big. So I'm, I'm, I'm really a Republican. Like even if the country isn't going too well, I'm still a Republican because abortion is still murder. Right. Or, you know, obviously you can you can fill in the same kind so of when, thing when for Democrats. So pe- when people talk Whereas about a like- floating voter does their evaluation more based on How's the economy doing? Is there a war going on that I don't like? What do I think about the candidate's personality traits? So sort of they take a more impressionistic snapshot of the state of the country. Right. So it's a very different evaluation mechanism. Right. So like when people talk about, well, do people think Hillary Clinton is honest and trustworthy? The assumption behind that discussion is that some substantial block of voters cares whether Hillary Clinton is honest or, or trustworthy. Or at least will we'll change their vote based exactly. on it. Right? Exactly. Like, you might think Hillary Clinton is not very honest and not very trustworthy, but you believe she will appoint a Supreme Court justice who will vote to uphold Roe v. Wade, and that is good enough for you. Right. So the, so the paper says there's not as many floating voters. <laughs> you know, when it's my paper, you don't, you don't really deliver that with very much Damn. drama. <laughs> oh, it's dramatic. I okay. feel like you didn't. I feel like you really didn't invest kind in of that. I it in a little yeah. bit. I should have just taken the citra myself. <sighs> this is a paper by Corwin Schmidt. <laughs> and it does say, as Matt puts it, that there, there are fewer floating voters. Let me say two things from the paper that I think are really interesting. And they're interesting to the way we should think about American politics. And I, I just love this statistic. Every election, there is a massive survey called the American National Election Survey, the ANES. And it does this huge kind of rolling snapshot of how people voted and why they voted the way they did. And one thing it will ask you is, are you a Republican or a Democrat or an independent? And are you kind of strong or weak, right? If you're a Republican, are you really Republican or are you just kind of Republican? And something he shows is that if you look at these surveys over the last 60 years – Someone who classifies themselves as an independent today, somebody who says, I am not a member of either party, is more predictably partisan in who they vote for than somebody who said they were a strong Republican or a strong Democrat in the 50s, which is amazing. Back then, someone who said, I am really Democratic, was more likely to vote within a couple of elections for the Republican presidential candidate than someone who says they are independent today. Now – This sort of independent thing is different than the floating voter question. People who just don't belong to a party may still be very engaged in politics. But Schmidt argues the mechanism here is the same. What is going on is not that voters are changing or becoming more partisan. Is it the parties are changing? That in 1950, 1960, 1970, 
it was actually, as a voter, potentially a little bit unclear to you what the two parties stood for. Back then, political scientists worried that we didn't have enough polarization, enough party polarization in the system, which sounds weird to us now. But but parties are supposed to help you structure a choice about who to vote for by presenting different options. And the Republican and Democratic parties, for, for a lot of reasons, many of them relating to the way race actually fucked up the political system, they were, were pretty indistinct. And so you can go back and look at the Medicare vote. And the Medicare vote ultimately gets a ton of Republican support. I think it was something like 70 Republicans in the House, something in the teens in the Senate, whereas Obamacare today gets zero Republicans in either chamber. Abortion is another. You were talking about pro-choice, pro-life. It wasn't, I think, until the 1980s that the two parties even had a platform on abortion. Exactly. And you wouldn't know from someone's party affiliate. It was hugely mixed. Pro-life and pro-choice were just like not camps right. that the parties split on. And, and so what, what Schmidt argues has happened, and I, I think this is a really interesting argument, is that the parties have become really distinct. And he shows this, that, that you can look at the at this survey, and one of the questions it asks is, do you have a very clear understanding of the differences between the two parties? And he shows it both for voters who are independent and for voters who are inattentive, right? So for voters who don't like either party or don't at least belong to either party and for voters who don't pay really any attention to politics at all. They're more aware. They say they're more aware of party differences today than partisan and highly attentive voters were 50 years ago. So again, you know, 50 years ago, if you were paying close attention and you really cared about your party, you were no more likely to know what the difference between the two parties actually was than somebody who is not a member of a party and is not very interested in politics is today. And so his argument is that it has become so clear what the parties are and how they're different that even voters who really don't give a shit about politics don't really become swing voters anymore. And the reason they don't become swing voters anymore is that the swing voting mechanism was kind of based on a sort of confusion, right? They would come in, they would see a bunch of ads. The ads would say everybody's an American and they've got a Labrador and they're all great. And they basically end up voting on the economy. And now they know so much about abortion politics and tax cut politics and Obamacare and everything else that even people who don't really pay attention kind of know which side they fall on. And this is a problem, he says, because it means that increasingly one one thing these voters did was they gave the parties a reason not to fuck up the economy, to actually govern well, because you, you had to attract this, you know, 12 percent of the electorate. And, and they kind of didn't care that you were just a Republican or a Democrat. But the other thing he argues is that the parties aren't going to have to try to appeal to very non-ideological voters as much. That It's becoming more an issue of base mobilization, more an issue of mobilizing people who you agree with than trying to be a party that that has a maximum number of people agreeing with it. It's an interesting paper and a very interesting uh, argument about how polarization affects voter choice that, you know, until I read it, when you read it, 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 it seems completely obvious. But until I read it, it had never really been that clear to me. It's worth sort of emphasizing that the mechanism being described here is that there was a genuine inscrutability right. to where the parties stood in the past to the extent that you can today historians dispute was the Eisenhower administration in favor of civil rights. I mean, it's not just that right. voters yeah. weren't sure, right? But they, it's, <laughs> it's unclear in retrospect. There's a, a fascinating revisionist book called A Matter of Justice, Eisenhower and Civil Rights, that makes the case that Eisenhower was was really for civil rights. And they point out that, for example, he appointed Earl Warren to be chief justice, <laughs> who wrote the Brown v. Board of Education decision. But like other people say this book is totally wrong, that that was a, a screw-up, that he appointed Warren because he owed Warren a favor because of some deal-making at the convention, and he didn't care about this. And like, there's all, just all kinds of 
weird stuff going on. Whereas today, you don't have that, right? No one, historians are not going to be doing archival research 60 years from now and being like, well, was Obama for Obamacare? Or was he against <laughs> it, right? It's in the name, right? It's just like, it's it's very obvious. To be fair, it's not the official name, but. <laughs> but but exactly, just the contemporary record yes. just makes it really, really clear. Not only like which things happened, because some conservative things happened when Obama was president, right? Like Sarah's written, right? Access to abortion has become much more difficult during the Obama administration. But it's very clear that that was not Barack Obama's intention. Right. We know who was behind that. We know who was against it. Like, it's it's obvious. Um, and that's just not the case for political developments that happened in the past. Like, the different moving parts had complicated and inscrutable interrelationships. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I, I stand up for a more transparent <laughs> mode of government. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think that this idea that, well... You would have better economic management if people were systematically confused about <laughs> the party's agendas on the major issues of the day. I mean, I, I see what he's saying, but it's a bit of a, I think, a screwy normative spin on this kind of thing. I think it was really, really bad that if you look at the the general election map from 1976, right, where Jimmy Carter gets into the presidency by sweeping the Deep South and adding, like, New York, right? <laughs> um, it, it's obvious that people were making a mistake, <laughs> right? Like, a, a significant minority of and you see that with with Reagan then sweeping forty nine states eight years right, later, right? Right, something something was wrong. A significant number of white Southerners seem to have decided. Well, one of the guys in this race is a white Southerner, <laughs> so I'm going to vote for him. And then four years later, they're like, "Wait a minute, my political <laughs> opinions are conservative. I'm going to vote for Ronald Reagan." That's I think worse than the parties being like a little rigid in their issue. Position. One of the things this makes me wonder is, so he's looking at these people from the 1950s who are identifying a strong Democrat. Like, what did it mean to be a strong member of a party at that point when you have, like, less of this rigidity to... Well, so it's so like yeah, probably a, a lot of Southerners were strong right. Democrats, and they had been voting for Democrats, <laughs> but Truman had the civil rights plank. Dwight Eisenhower was this huge war hero. And so Eisenhower wins some Southern states, presumably exclusively on the votes of people who would have told you they were strong Democrats. Right. right? And, and one one part of that, which is just interesting, one reason people are very strong Democrats was the Republican Party. One reason the South was such a tremendously Democratic bloc was the Republican Party was a party of Abraham Lincoln that had launched this civil war against Southern sovereignty. And, you know, the Democratic Party was considered, you know, this kind of um, – more pro-civil rights party. And uh, I'm sorry, the, the Republican Party is considered this more pro-civil rights party. And, and a lot of Southern Democrats voted for congressional and Southern Democrats who really formed a solid block in Congress that stopped civil rights legislation from moving forward. And, and a big part of the reason that the two parties end up scrambled in this period is that the most salient issue to Southern voters was civil rights. And you had a lot of Democratic voters who were conservative on economic policy, were aggressive on foreign policy, but they voted Democratic because they associated it with their local representatives. But their local representatives are really different than a Massachusetts Democrat. So you had this huge regional scrambling. You know, and then also party is a, a tribal identity, right? I mean, there are a lot of people now who, yes, it is true that they have a very liberal ideology on these things. But that ideology isn't like 
they like sat in a they like went to a mountaintop and found a blue flower and like meditate like crushed it up and like inhaled you know the the burnt embers and then like meditated for three days and they're like I really believe both that global warming is real and that abortion should be legal and that we're not going to see a very large investment disincentive effect if we slightly raise the capital gains tax rate like the the ideology is absorbed from the party down as well through this kind of like you're with the party because your parents were Democrats and then like you become a Democrat so you begin listening to more Democratic information sources and then you end up with this coalition of opinions that don't really have that much to do with each other but are, are very liberal. It's one reason Trump is interesting in that he's somewhat scrambling what it is okay to think about as a Republican, right? Like he's got a sort of unusual issue set that most Republicans don't where like everybody else on that stage basically believes the exact same thing about every issue. I mean, with with some small exceptions. But to just push on something you said, Madden, and I agree for the most part, I think a really big mistake we make in American politics is thinking party polarization is a bad thing. The, the sort of equation in people's heads, I think, is that politics isn't working. Party polarization is a reason it isn't working. So the way to make politics work is to reduce party polarization. I don't think we're ever going to reduce party polarization. I don't even think party polarization is bad. What you need is a political system that can work amidst party polarization, which we don't have. We There's this great line from Ron Brownstein. I've probably quoted it on the show before, but that we have parliamentary parties but not parliamentary rules. But one argument Schmidt makes, and I think this is a fair argument, I think normatively – it is a case that you would want people to have a really good understanding of where the parties stand and who to vote for. But I think it is also possible that while that is a better way for a political system to work overall, that it can have perverse effects in, in, in practice if everybody goes down that path, if all parties have to do is sort of base mobilization exercises. It may be that that is, in general, that is how we want things to be, but there can be sort of benevolent inefficiencies in things. There can be, there can be a utility to parties having to appeal to different kinds of voters and appeal to them in different kinds of ways. And, and you've even made the argument that for the Democratic Party, in particular to win in the South, it really needs to be running sort of more moderate candidates and, and trying to think of much more of a median voter approach to, to winning elections, which lately, at least at the national level, they don't seem to be doing. His argument is that there is a, uh, a diversity of voters that by imposing different kinds of evaluations and checks on a political system ultimately helps force some outcomes that are positive. Now, this is not something he's able to really prove in the thing. It's all theory. But I, I think it's provocative. I'm not sure it's wrong. But what I think is curious and not really explained by the phenomenon discussed in this paper is the collapse of median voter seeking. Right, that you could have very confusing political parties like you had in the 50s and 60s, but you could also have reasonably clear differences, directional differences, mm -hmm. like this is the higher tax party and this is the lower tax party. Like you have in, in Germany, right? It's clear that the Social Democrats favor higher taxes in a more generous welfare state than the conservatives, but they just don't disagree by that much. Right. Right. And that's because they're seeking median voters. Whereas you have Hillary Clinton proposing substantial increases in taxation on the wealthy after substantial increases in taxation on the wealthy were enacted by Barack Obama. And then you have Republicans proposing bigger tax cuts than George W. Bush proposed, right? There's this like yawning multi-trillion dollar chasm right. that nobody <laughs> is filling. And you could – have candidates who were closer to the median point without inducing confusion 
as to which was the high tax party and which was the low tax party. You would just need more restrained ambitions. It seems to me that the, the normative conclusions are being driven more by the, by the gap than by the sorting, right? I might be right. And an interesting question about, about the Trump phenomenon is, you know, why does this happen? Uh, there's been a, a lot of discussion in, in the media about uh, party decides theory of, of nominations. Um, and that's a link to a, another. If you don't know what this is, you should search um, Vox party decides party or decides. Andrew Prokop party decides because he had a, our, our colleague mm-hmm. Andrew Prokop had a great sort of feature. It's a political science theory of how presidential yeah. primary elections particularly and work. And so uh, so a similar – many of the people behind that book also wrote a, a paper called uh, A Theory of Political Parties that's uh, somewhat different. Uh, but but they describe in that the idea that political parties in America now are controlled by what they call intense policy demanders and that that's why you have this like this gap, right? And what Donald Trump is doing is not just putting to the test the theory that the party decides, but is putting to the test the theory that the party is controlled, is in fact controlled by intense policy demanders. The Trump proposition is that the Republican Party is controlled by the kinds of people who are in demographic groups that are likely to vote for Republican candidates. And that what you ought to do is espouse the opinions that those people hold. And that by espousing the opinions that they hold, they will vote for you in the primary and then you will become the nominee. And so if that's true, because we know that Republican Party voters do not have the Republican Party view on tax cuts, just as we know Democratic Party voters don't have the Democratic Party view on abortion, right? That those are donor-driven sorts of, of precepts, right? And it's just not totally obvious. It's true that for the past 10 to 20 years, the parties have behaved as if the opinions of their donors are more important than the opinions of their voters. But that's not a law of nature exactly. And the way campaign finance works is always shifting. And it turns out that like a crazy real estate developer, reality TV star can do weird things and maybe have some success with it. You really need to write this, a theory of parties in Donald Trump piece. Okay. This is a really good idea. Got to put it on the site, man. Boom. Got to piazz. Yeah. Now they've gotten to the article assignment portion of the podcast. I know from emails that people don't like all the sort of self-congratulation on this podcast, but I really enjoyed this podcast. I learned a lot about gentrification. Thank you, Matt. As did I. As always, you can find us on iTunes and you can rate us uh, with high ratings. That will increase our velocity in the algorithm. And make or get us a holiday fans. present and subscribe to our podcast. And we'd be so that thrilled. That would be a nice holiday that's present. What we, that's what I'm asking my parents good. for. You can email us at weeds at box.com. This is The Weeds. It is a Vox and Panoply podcast, and we will be back next week.